Hello, and welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. This is a Zoom recording of a live event organised for the American Society for Microbiology at the recent World Microbe Forum, and it's hosted by me, yours truly, Ben Plumley. You can find new episodes of A Shot in the Arm podcast on our YouTube channel and on our website, ashotinthearmpodcast.com, and you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. Hope you find the conversation interesting and informative, and have a great week and a safe week, everyone. Hello, my name is Victor Dorita. I'm the president of the ASM, and I'm happy to have you all here tonight in what I think will be a really interesting discussion. This is our uh, officer's reception, and as leaders of the society, I hope you've been enjoying this meeting, which I think has been phenomenal this week. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've been to several sessions and uh, and I've just been amazed at, at, the, at the platform and how well it's been working and how much interaction I've been able to have with people. And I think that's exciting. Um, you know, one of the things that I want to point out before we get going tonight, and, and I explain a little bit about what we're up to tonight, is that I, I, was, I had an interesting opportunity today to be on a panel with a bunch of other people, other scientists. And we were talking about, hey, it's over. COVID's, you know, we're getting behind it. And it's really, uh, oh, things are opening up. And, uh, and that's wonderful. And, we, and a lot of us feel that way, but not everybody feels that way. And in particular, we had a colleague on that panel who's from Brazil, and they are not opening up to the same degree that we are, and neither is it happening in India uh, the, the way it's happening in uh, higher income countries. And so uh, there's a gap. There's a gap in vaccine uh, delivery, delivery and, and, uh, and making sure that people who, who should be vaccinated are vaccinated. And ASM and the World Microbe Forum in, in, in large sense uh, has an, uh, an official um, uh, charity for our meeting this year, and that's uh, the COVAX program. COVAX is a, is a multi-organizational uh, operation that's goal, whose goal is to get 2 billion vaccine doses delivered this year outside of higher income countries and low and middle income countries where, where the people are living in, in a completely different world than what many of us are living in, in terms of uh, their ability to open up. So I urge you to go to asm.org slash COVAX to donate. All the donations that are put into, into uh, that site uh, for the month of June, go directly to COVAX to help them on their important mission. So uh, please, uh, this is an opportunity to, for us to kind of extend our scientific impact by simply putting money into a website and helping COVAX deliver vaccines around the world. So please do that tonight. I've donated uh, a couple of times and I, and I urge everybody who's watching tonight to do the same. Uh, so interestingly, speaking about COVID, that's really what we're about tonight. So as some of us are feeling like we're coming out of COVID, uh, what's next? Where do we go from here? Uh, and uh, for for that discussion, our uh, chief business development officer, Christine Russo, has put together a really phenomenal panel and uh, panel discussion on those questions that are going to bring in uh, issues of, of virus hunting and One Health and AI robotics and all kinds of really cool stuff that we don't necessarily think of all the time. But was, as we're coming out of COVID and we're looking to the future, we will be deploying these uh, thought leaders concepts uh, very rapidly. So I look forward to the discussion tonight. Um, I will turn this over now to our CEO, Stefano Bertuzzi, uh, for a few words and then look forward to a wonderful session tonight. Thank you, Christine, for organizing this. Stefano, it's all yours. Thank you, Vic, and good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us here. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Officers Forum. 
the drinks are in your kitchen. Uh, normally, we would be uh, we would be all cheering and drinking and talking to each other. We promise we're going to double down next year when uh, hopefully we'll be uh, meeting in person. Um, let me uh, extend a, a very warm welcome to our um, corporate council partners who are invited at this uh, at this reception. Um, corporate council is very very important for ASM, and just all that happened during the pandemic has shown us how important it is for scientists to work together also with industry. Uh, in particular, it has been for the diagnostic industry, the vaccine industry, and ASM has done terrific work in that space, thanks to the contribution of our uh, basic scientists, industry scientists, and, uh, and the corporation that works so closely with ASM. So thank you very much for being here. And thank you to our um, Chief Business Development Officer, Christine Russo, for organizing this excellent session. Thank you again. Donate to COVAX, a uh, very important cause. Thank you, and I look forward to the evening. Lovely. Thank you very much, Stefano, and thank you, Vic. Um, my name is Ben Plumley. I am a host of A Shot in the Arm podcast, which is a global health and human rights uh, podcast that comes out weekly. This uh, session will actually be posted as a uh, podcast reaching our audiences around the world in the next few days. Um, I just want to add my welcome um, uh, as well as a shot in the arm. I'm the chair of the MTV Staying Alive Foundation and I'm a senior advisor to the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. Um, we could not have, I think, a more important issue for our, this evening's conversation. Um, and in many ways, uh, welcoming you to the World Microbe Forum and to the ASM's meeting, um, what you talk about, what you decide over these few days is undoubtedly going to have a profound impact on the way in which the world comes out, hopefully, globally, as, as Victor said, about around this particular phase of the pandemic, but for future pandemics. And I think a key theme that we're interested in exploring tonight is the fact that this isn't just a biomedical crisis. This is a crisis of um, animal health, of climate change, how we utilize technologies like data and AI to help us prepare uh, and really respond in a way that is, is commensurate with the way in which we in the 21st uh, century live. So what we're gonna do is have a few presentations um, and then uh, and I'll introduce the speakers as we go along. Uh, and then what we'll do is have a facilitated discussion. Now, you'll see that there is an opportunity to put questions into the chat. Um, please feel free to do so and we'll do our very best uh, to incorporate those and include those. Um, uh, so before kicking off, I just want to thank uh, ASM, thank uh, Victor and Stefano, and also thank my friend Christine Russo. Christine and I have worked with each other for a number of years, doing, uh, getting into all sorts of trouble in uh, promoting uh, diagnostics uh, availability around the world. And it really couldn't be better of the ASM to encourage us to contribute to COVAX. And again, Vic and Stefano, I think it's, it's really cool that you're doing this. Um, this is the issue of the moment. So, so thank you very much. 
Right. Well, let's get right into it. Um, our first speaker is Jay Volgamuth, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Quest Diagnostics. Um, Jay's going to speak to us for about 20 minutes. Um, again, hold, put your questions down in the chat, and then we'll come back to him in the Q&A. But Jay, over to you. Thanks, Ben. Can you hear me okay? I'm uh, sharing my screen, and I will get us warmed up. And uh, good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm Jay Wolgamuth, Chief Medical Officer at Quest Diagnostics. And, you know, it, it, we are nearing the end, uh, beginning of the end of the pandemic. And from my perspective, what I'm going to share is what we have learned in the laboratory industry in the U.S. in particular, but also globally around healthcare delivery, around dealing with uh, pandemics and emerging infections, and, and we have learned an awful lot. And to set the stage um, just a little bit here, my interest coming into this pandemic was and is population health. And the way I define that is that it's a universal goal in healthcare to improve clinical outcomes, to improve the cost of healthcare, and to improve the experience. And what I'm going to tell you, and I think we all already know this, in the United States in particular, we don't do very well um, in delivering on the triple aim prior to the pandemic. The costs and outcomes of healthcare are, are not where they should be at all. And in particular, people do not engage in healthcare at the level that they, they might do and at the level that might improve outcomes in a significant way. And uh, at Quest and a lot of our, in the industry here, we've been working very hard on this problem. And, and on the bottom right, I'm showing that we've been working to show that yes, it is possible to improve um, on all three aspects of the triple aim, but to do so, um, you really have to have what I call consumer-centric healthcare and not doctor-centric healthcare, for example. And so to get into this, let me start with some of the things that happened during the pandemic. And then I'm going to get into some of the things we learned and some of the changes that I think that we'll see that are really accelerations in positive trends in healthcare from my perspective. So from a, a sort of an easy one to start with is, um, you know, in order to meet the demands of uh, uh, the testing requirements in the country, uh, Quest was the first laboratory to come out with an EUA for pooling and although it seems to, you know, we've done pooling in this industry in the past, it now becomes clear that this is a very cost-effective way to scale up to meet the demands of this type of pandemic and perhaps to meet the demands of other types of testing in the future. So that was a, an early sort of learning here um, on, a, on a methodology standpoint. But I think far more important was this, um, and that is, if you'll recall February and March in the United States, uh, 2020, uh, we have the worst healthcare crisis uh, pretty much in the history of this country. And we, we inform the country that testing is very, very important. However, don't go to the healthcare system, don't go to the hospital, don't go to the physician's office. And so where did we go? We went to parking lots all over the US to swab and provide testing for SARS-CoV-2. 
And of course, that's not a very smart way to uh, provide consumer-centric care either. It's inconvenient. You've got 200 cars a day lining up in Walmart parking lots, and you have the, the protective gear required. And so uh, in the mid-May timeframe, we developed and launched a self-collection kit for SARS-CoV-2 PCR. And now we have the opportunity, and, and since that time have done millions of tests using this approach of literally handing a kit or shipping a kit to a person's home, having them self-collect that um, sample and send it back into the laboratory, room temperature, FedEx, nobody goes out of their home, no one who might be infectious goes out into the community, no protective gear is needed. We even went so far as that, and this is you know almost comical, but we went almost we went as far as having drones dropping kits on people's lawns in order to get healthcare delivered to their home. And so when you think about this, I mean, this has obviously been a, a very important um, way forward. And then you ask yourself, well, why? Why did it take a pandemic for us to start to think this way? Isn't it true that people will engage in healthcare in a much more convenient and reliable and frequent way if that healthcare is delivered and around that person? Other things we learned is the consumer-centric care was highly important, and we rapidly developed ways to have a physician order, but to have that consumer be able to ask for the test from home, to have an online experience, um, to have no out-of-pocket costs, uh, and then to have a physician order and oversee a test, again, from the convenience of the consumer's home. The other impact we saw, aside from the devastating direct impact of the virus um, on healthcare, was the indirect costs, which was that routine preventative healthcare, chronic care management, and all healthcare needs really dropped off a cliff during the year. And we published multiple articles on this. Cancer rates of screening went down, diabetic management went down, uh, screening for hepatitis C went down. And of course those issues didn't go away, but there was no way to serve healthcare to the, the community at large if that healthcare could not be delivered in person in a physician office or a healthcare system. And my concept is, well, shouldn't it have been that way all along? Shouldn't we have delivered healthcare in a way that's actually convenient and designed around the consumer and not designed around the hospital or the physician office in many cases? Of course, there are cases when it's required and highly important to show up in person for that care, absolutely critical. But you know, there's a real uh, issue here with access to care, and it was like that beforehand. And I think that this pandemic just really opened our eyes to this need for uh, consumer-centric care, telemedicine, home-based care solutions. The other thing that I think we already knew, but that sort of uh, we got reminded of in a big way through this is the disparities in healthcare delivery and access in the United States in particular. And those disparities have been well known, but it really came out through the pandemic that not only were, um, were underserved communities and minority communities impacted by uh, this virus in a much bigger way, also access to healthcare in those communities is not nearly where it should be and not nearly at the level 
of, um, of other communities. And this came out such as in this study where we, we showed pretty definitively and many others did as well, that there's a massive uh, dis, uh, dis, uh, you know, uh, issue with access and care for COVID in this country. And again, it's not just COVID. This is just a reminder that these disparities are real and very significant. We also along the way realized that these samples that we run at Quest Diagnostics every day for cholesterol measurements or liver function or whatever it may be are actually a highly valuable public health resource. And along the way, we began to take those discards and use them in conjunction with the CDC to measure seroprevalence in the community at large. And when we began to do that, what we found, this is very early data, but what we found is that the actual rate of SARS-CoV-2 seropositivity in the community was on average tenfold higher than it was being reported through the public health mechanisms at large. Uh, and so that was another kind of valuable um, lesson that we learned um, through this. And I'll, I'll show you where we're going um, with that. So based on these learnings, I'm now gonna turn to you know, where do we go from here? What are we focused on? Again, from a, from a Quest uh, laboratory standpoint. And that's all about consumer-centric care and delivering healthcare to individuals in a highly effective and convenient way. So first up, I'm gonna, you know, show you um, what we're doing here with home-based virtual care. So not only should we be able to do a SARS-CoV-2 PCR from the home, but what about an annual preventative care testing? What about diabetic workups? What about pharmacogenetics and pharma services? And in all these cases, the workflow, which was rapidly developed, is uh, start with testing at home if possible. Ship a kit to the person's home or have them go to a patient service center or a Walmart and get their blood drawn. Uh, and then we've delivered different types of services that are virtual care services on top of this. For example, we provide individuals who are employees of companies with a um, annual testing kit, and then they gain access for three months to digital uh, text-based uh, uh, telemedicine services for three months with our partner 98.6. And during that, the person can get interpretation and referrals and ask any questions that they need and get directed into the, the brick and mortar healthcare system to where they need to go. In another you know, incarnation of this, we provide a virtual primary care checkup where there is biometrics, uh, blood pressure cuff, uh, lab testing, uh, the person's drug history and uh, drug information is pulled. A questionnaire and history are completed, uh, including a mental health assessment. And a nurse practitioner will then telephonically or with video meet with that person, go over their gaps in care, their required health care, and direct them into the healthcare system where they need to go. And in a third um, in, you know, uh, version of this, we're actually providing pharmacogenetic testing for our employees and other employees who are on multiple medications, and particularly those on medications with known pharmacogenetic interactions. And in this, um, you know, in this approach, we provide a pharmacist to meet with that person 
go over their medications and not only the medications that have pharmacogenetic interactions, but also their entire medication regimen to make changes to it and to improve outcomes around the use of medications. And again, my thought is, boy, this is an acceleration of what I, you know, what we should be doing to engage people in healthcare and then absolutely steer them in, engage them and steer them into the healthcare system where they need to go to really take care of their needs. In another, you know, another impact of this, I'm very proud of this, is that Quest Diagnostics then, based on the health disparities that we were seeing and based on um, what was going on in our country around race and inequity, uh, created the Quest for Health Equity. And this is a over $100 million fund to do research and implementation of population health that gets at delivery of healthcare to underserved communities across the country. And you can see various studies that we have sponsored through this mechanism. Again, an acceleration of uh, you know, investment in, in health healthcare inequities that, it, that we knew were there, but you know, the pandemic shined a bright spotlight on that issue and, and accelerated this work. Also, I, I really do uh, see a big change in the way that industry is working with the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, and I, I mentioned some of it. I mean, we're doing large-scale seroprevalence studies using our discards and running serology. We are taking our samples that meet criteria around the country and doing SARS-CoV-2 sequencing and providing that data to public health authorities. And we have a best-of-all-time relationship with the FDA to rapidly work through uh, the development and implementation of new approaches. We had 15 you know, EUAs along the way. I've never worked that closely with the FDA in my career. Um, so a lot of good came around from this in the, the, the work that we do with the academic and uh, government agencies. We also then coming back to the issue at hand have learned an awful lot around pandemic preparedness. And, you know, we responded, we being all of us responded to the SARS-CoV-2 uh, pandemic. However, we can do a lot better in the future based on what we learned. And this has to do with uh, surveillance. And we'll hear more about that. Understanding which organisms are emerging, which organisms are emerging from zoonotic infections, how do we surveil for those um, coming internationally or within our own country? And then why would we wait to develop the tests for those pandemic threats? We know many of those that are major threats. And so in the future, and the future is now, um, we will have assays on the shelf and at the ready for the, the most significant, what we call red level pandemic threats so that we can rapidly respond to a pandemic threat in the future. Um, and so if I give you a little more flavor of this, and I, I think uh, that our, our next speaker will touch on this significantly, um, we know um, that there are a significant number of respiratory viral threats that are either in humans or are in animals around, around the world. And we know that there are a set of very high risk threats right now. And so our surveillance programs will be focused on those threats, uh, both internationally and in the U.S. with many partners. But also, why would we not 
have assays on the shelf and at the ready um, for these major threats, which will come over one or the other um, over time. You know, what led to this, I think we know, was globalization, urbanization, and food, and the way food is consumed and developed um, around the world. Those issues are not changing. And so not to be doomsday, but to say we need to be prepared and we do know um, about those threats. So, you know, let's get ready. And at Quest, we're being very active about developing those, working with our partners to be prepared. And again, I think both of our next talks will really drill into this, you know, with some depth. And so finally, you know, there's this global aspect. I mean, Quest Diagnostics is definitely a U.S.-focused company. Um, and we have actually put laboratories in India and other places over the years. But what we've learned is there's no way to be deep into China and deep into South Korea and deep into the Middle East and understand the healthcare system and logistics. And so what we've done is we formed a global diagnostic network. Think of it as, as a uh, global alliance um, of laboratories. And, you know, this is incredibly relevant, I think, to pandemic preparedness. One quick story is that our partner in South Korea, uh, Green Cross Laboratories, actually in March, actually late February 2020, provided us validation samples in order to rapidly validate and launch a SARS-CoV-2 PCR within one week of the FDA opening up the, the rules around uh, developing those tests. We also have a very strong relationship with KingMed in China. And during the pandemic, we're interacting with them almost we you know weekly trying to exchange data and understand what's going on in real time. And I think uh, for all of us, we, what we have learned is that there is no isolation, particularly in uh, infectious disease. Infectious diseases and pandemic threats are absolutely global threats. And there is no way that we will respond maximally and really um, defend ourselves and respond um, as best we can without global cooperation. And I can tell you on, on my side, that global co cooperation is at an all time high. It's not just Quest Diagnostics that is realizing this, it's also all of these partners that we've have assembled that are coming to the table now saying, yes, we want to share protocols. We want to share thoughts on what are the greatest threats. We want to align on assay development and be at the ready to work together to share and rapidly mobilize so that we're not caught on our heels next time around. And so, um, you know, there's a lot more that we learned through this. Um, I think that we could go on and on around silver linings. Um, in, in my world, I would say this uh, pandemic in this last year was the greatest single accelerator I've seen in my career of healthcare innovation um, and of mobilizing the healthcare industry to work together um, as a side note, the LabCorp CMO is now on speed dial for me, right? Uh, Quest traditional uh, competitor. And I think that all of us have formed many relationships through this that have just been accelerated by, by the crisis and the need for us to come together and work together in what is a fragmented healthcare system. And so with that, uh, Ben, I think I'm going to hand back to you and we'll go on to the next speaker.
Great. Thanks, Jay. What a, what a really terrific presentation. And I, you know, really appreciate the comments around pooling uh, of alternative specimen uh, collection, um, the impact that this is this epidemic has had on on all sorts of ways of our of our living. Um, I got to say a big thank you from the city of San Francisco. Quest played a huge role in helping the organizations that support the homeless in making sure they could get testing. I mean, it's it's one thing to get a test to where people live, but what happens if you have nowhere where you live? So uh, this extraordinary creativity that came out from the public, private and nonprofit and academic centers. So, so thank you very much indeed. Thanks, man. Well, our next speaker is going to sort of take us to the um, uh, expand the uh, the impact of COVID on the way we think um, from health to veterinary services and particularly to this concept of One Health. And it's a real pleasure, a real honour for me to introduce Professor uh, John Mazette, who is the Professor of Epidemiology and Disease Ecology. Um, and she's the Executive Director of the One Health Institute at the University of California at Davis. Um, she's also, by the way, a frequent guest on a Shot in the Arm podcast and has some extraordinary things to say. So uh, hold on to your horses. Um, Jonna, over to you. Well, thanks, Ben. And, uh, and I appreciate that. And it's lovely to be with you again. And it's an honor to be with this esteemed panel. And uh, I just wanted to, um, hold on, I think that it's not sharing properly. One sec. <laughs> Get it going again. All right. Um, I just wanted to thank Jay for that great talk because I 100% am with him uh, in that it's the networking and um, being together uh, and thinking about how our health uh, is connected to every other person's health on this planet. And if we denied that before, we know it now. And so I just really want to emphasize that, uh, that we are all connected. And it's not just we humans that are connected, but it is the whole planet, including the animals on that planet. And I'm going to talk to you just a little bit about how I think we can use that information. And if we broaden our networks and we cross disciplinary lines and we reach out and work together, we can make a much healthier, safer future for all of us. So we are vulnerable. Uh, I started working in this realm in the emerging infectious diseases about 15, 20 years ago now. Uh, and when I started, uh, it was pretty clear that we were seeing about three new emerging infectious diseases in people every year. And I'm sorry to tell you that that's now increased. And that's even increased to about five, even when we control for um, our diagnostics constantly getting better, our surveillance getting better. These new pathogens that are get, finding their way to us, making us sick, 
are on the rise. And that means we have to be thinking about the drivers for those pathogens emerging. Uh, and, um, and we need to be thinking about how to reduce our risks here. And I'll tell you, I don't, I don't think uh, it's a surprise to anyone in this group, but these pathogens aren't leaping out and attacking us. It is our own behavior that is putting us at risk. And that behavior that puts us at risk for terrible, devastating consequences like what we've been living through also are very connected to those same behaviors or drivers, as we like to say, for a lot of the other wicked problems of the planet and society, like climate change. Um, and so if we start thinking about our own behavior societally, personally, we can begin to reduce risk and we can make large leaps in reducing risk if we do this together as a global society. Now we can't eliminate every spillover or disease outbreak event that might be from one species, an animal species I'm gonna to talk to you about, spilling over into people. Now, if we think about viruses as ICTV recognized viruses, we're still very, very low as far as numbers. It was about 250 before we started this project. It's about 260 now. But people all over the world are discovering more and more viruses. So we need to think about our systems, how we characterize those viruses, um, how we think about those viruses, uh, how we research those viruses, because we can identify them and we can stop them from spreading at their source. Again, mostly by adjusting our human behavior. I unfortunately have to tell you, I'm going to talk to you about a project that I was honored to be the leader for people in many countries, more than 30 countries around the world that were working to look at how do we build the systems to identify viruses early and identify the risks associated with those viruses early and help stop um, those risky behaviors. And what we really wanted to do is we wanted to get in front of the curve. And so I'm going to be a little bit of a geek here. I am an epidemiologist. So I'm going to show you a, a disease curve or an epidemic curve here. It's idealistic. As you can see, it's on the order of days, not months or years like we're living through. But in this green area where we have this mixture, we call the zoonotic pool of viruses circulating in their own hosts, mostly not making their hosts sick, but occasionally spilling over. And these are rare events, but they do happen much more frequently than I think we um, have ever thought about or anticipated. We have data to show that they can spill over into domestic animals and amplify like with MERS before they spill over into people. They can also threaten our food supply when they spill over into the domestic animals, or they could spill over directly from that zoonotic pool into humans. And then we have these, these um, terrible epidemic curves, right? Where we're chasing it, we're chasing it. And again, we all lived through that with COVID um, and most places around the world are still living through that. And we need to think about that none of us are safe until everyone is safe. And, um, and just coming back to 
where I think we need to be is we need to be forecasting. We need to be ready. We can't do that without knowing what viruses are out there. Our work has shown that there are probably on the orders of many hundreds of thousands of viruses in viral taxonomic families that can spill over and infect people that are out there available to infect us. And so it's fine to say that we think SARS-CoV-2 is, is a very rare event. It is obviously a very rare event, but we have many, many potential events out there that just aren't taking hold. And the more that we're changing the way we use the planet and our population growth is increasing, the more that we are at risk for these viruses really being able to spill over and take hold. So we need the laboratories. So again, Jay was talking about the laboratory network. We need the laboratories. We need them to be prepared. We need them to be available. We need them to have all of the skills and the tools that they need to do the early detection and characterization. And if we have those things, we're upstream. We know where to look. We know how to find it. We know how to respond when there are early signals. We have a chance for control operations, which obviously um, we are very much uh, sort of behind that. And I agree with Jay that we have everything we need technologically to actually start to prime the pumps uh, for diagnostics and for vaccines so that we don't get into this terrible tragedy numbering in the millions, but we have also the ability to change our behavior if we understand what risks are out there and where they are. And so I'll tell you a story about our PREDICT project, which uh, has ended now. It was an 11-year project funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development, where we wanted to identify the ways to increase our capacity for identifying viruses of epidemic and pandemic potential, strengthening the systems in the places, not in the U.S., because USAID works off soil, right, off our, our outside our national boundaries, but help to build um, the protocol for countries to develop these things and, as we were going, identify virus and begin to come up with those estimates like I just gave you. And I want you to know that when we started this project just 11 years ago, there were no safety protocols available by which we could build from for doing this work. So in just these this past decade, the world has dramatically changed, changed for the better, changed because we know about how to use PPE, when to um, use PPE, but that was not the case just a decade ago. So we are very lucky that we even could muster the PPE uh, that was so difficult at the beginning of this pandemic. Also, in diagnostic laboratories, generally we found when working in many of these countries around the world that there were actually um, just a few tests that each laboratory did. They had a kit, they were trained well on the kit, they had equipment for that kit, but they didn't necessarily 
actually have the underpinnings and the knowledge of how to be pathogen agnostic and identify and pick up new things that might be causing the diseases in their country. Now, I will say that some of the places are better off than I am if I go to the doctor here, because they now have a bit more agnostic platform that they can use um, when something is new. And I think, as Jay mentioned, we have the capacity to do that in all of our laboratories, not just our academic medical centers and things that are doing that for people here now. So what did we do? We looked in that zoonotic pool, as I mentioned, um, and we are trying to find the early recognition uh, and detect viruses, again, mostly in those uh, 25 about viral families uh, that cause, have caused human disease in the past. But we're also looking in the people, the people that were working in areas in intimate contact with animals, identifying their risky behaviors, trying to see if healthy people had the viruses we were picking up in animals and if sick people in the hospitals and the catch basins around these intensive uh, transmission interfaces were, were coming in with fevers and encephalitides of unknown origin, and they were. Um, and then we also worked with FAO to look at the livestock and try to triangulate what's happening in these systems. And what, what our result in that, um, really it was a, about, a, it was scheduled as a 10-year project. We did expand for one uh, year in a small way at the end just to help with the COVID outbreak. But I'm really proud to say that we uh, helped to train almost 7,000 individuals in these laboratories around the world, in 60 laboratories around the world that now can do pathogen detection and discovery, uh, as well as work with field folks to identify all of the risk characteristics that go along with those. To do that, we had to sample 164,000 individuals, mostly wildlife, but also livestock and people. And we discovered quite a lot of virus. But obviously, when I say that we found 949 new viruses, and we also detected 217 known viruses, many of those bad actors, finding them in new hosts and in new locations, expanding uh, the information that the public health systems in those areas had. I think it is exciting to do that, but it is more important to recognize that that allowed us to look at viral discovery curves and realize that we were just scratching the surface, which of course is evidenced by us not knowing about SARS coronavirus 2 before this pandemic, because there are hundreds of thousands of viruses that need to be detected. The project was able to make some major contributions. Um, and I want to just highlight a few of those as I go through this story, including identifying that um, SARS-like viruses, SARS-related coronaviruses were more prevalent than expected, were more diverse than expected, and that we could identify that, um, that the SARS-like coronaviruses were using the ACE2 receptor, including in what we consider evolutionary hosts and people. That started to help identify how these viruses can be transmitted and if they needed intermediate hosts or not, um, and where and how people might get exposed. 
We did identify uh, 160 new coronaviruses, many of those SARS-related coronaviruses. We found 177. So you can tell we found 17 that were already known and 160 that were novel when we just started doing this work, really, again, to do the system strengthening, but identifying viruses as we went. Now, what did that do that helped us to share with the public health community that the majority of SARS-related coronaviruses or the Sarbeco coronaviruses were in rhinophilid and hippocidrid bats. So that again allowed us to say, hey, where to look for these hosts, where to look for these spillover events. And oh, by the way, when we start to overlay the hosts that carry these viruses, you can see that the distribution is much larger than what many are saying like just Southern China or things like that, because where the work has been done before uh, highlights those areas doesn't mean that that's where the only place we should be looking and that we need to be much more, um, again, open-minded and use all of the scientific tools at our disposal to do that. We were also able to identify that exposure is, is much more problematic and prevalent in China, finding um, actually uh, the serology and specific evidence with SARS-related coronaviruses that you could have co communities with up to 3% of people had been exposed and no one had known to be sick from it before. In the markets in Vietnam, we we're able to, to actually sample along with the, the um, wildlife trade workers and see that in the field, rodents have about 20% uh, infection or prevalence of coronaviruses when you concentrate them, mix them with other species in large markets, that gets up to about a third of them. But scarily, when it gets to the restaurants and the restaurant workers and the butchers there, it's over half have coronaviruses because of the amplification of pathogens in the wildlife trade. Now, we didn't stop SARS coronavirus 2. Obviously, we had a are living through this horrible pandemic and many countries are just at the height of it. Um, what I can say is that we were very, very proud to show what can be done if you build networks like these of people who can work in the field, who know about PPE, who can train their fellow countrymen in these things, who, who can, are working in laboratories that can do the basic virology to really identify viruses de novo. And what we saw was even before we had a full sequence of this virus and even even before there was a WHO-approved test or protocol, our teams in places like Thailand, Cambodia, Nepal, were diagnosing the very first imported cases into their countries, allowing their country's public health systems to jump into action and start working because they were prepared, because they knew they had One Health experts. Some places, like our colleague in Rwanda, was the only person to have written a paper on a coronavirus in his country. He was immediately on the national task force, as many of our people were. So we're really proud of all of the help that our um, teams jumped in again after the project was basically over for them, jumped in and helped their countries uh, to really uh, do a great job in getting going. I think we're seeing now some of that waning 
Um, and that's problematic, right? It's waning and it's not waning just because they have vaccine and they're getting things under control. We wane our activities and our vigilance because we get fatigued. And that's something we have to be really careful about. Just a couple things to finish up. One is that we really needed to um, not just say, this is scary, this is dangerous. We needed to work with the communities to say, what are we gonna do about this? You're living with bats in your home, for example, that we know are shedding filoviruses and coronaviruses. What can you do to make your home more safe? And so we developed a Living Safely with Bats book for community engagement that's been translated into more than 12 languages and delivered in many, many more dialects uh, around the world um, to help people. And again, this was all before uh, the COVID pandemic. Um, and we decided throughout this that we needed to give the public and policymakers and public health practitioners more data. And so we started this process of figuring out what are the spillover risks with the, the huge numbers of viruses we discovered, but with what is coming from the uh, communities now that everyone, hopefully everyone, is out there and discovering virus safely and getting all of the risk characteristics of those viruses characterized, again, in a very safe way, so that we can take action when we know what our risks are um, and what we are doing to put ourselves at risk. So 65 experts from all over the world helped us rank all of the different factors we could identify associated with the viruses that we found and that had been found to date in the viral families that cause epidemics and pandemics. And we created an app. You can go to spillover.global if you'd like to play with the app. But the real power of this app is that if people like you who are out there discovering virus start to put the viruses and the risk characteristics into some sort of shareable database. So we're making this as kind of our straw app, if you will, for characterizing virus risk. And we did go in and put in all of the viruses um, from wildlife in those zoonotic families that have been discovered to date, including the ones from the PREDICT project, and we can create watch lists. This is a watch list that doesn't include any of the known zoonotics, just looks at the new ones. And you can see that there are a lot of coronaviruses at the top of that watch list. Now, if you wanna jump in and look, for example, at SARS, um, coronavirus 2, you can find out all of the different risk factors. But if you want to submit a virus, you only have to ask, answer about 10 questions. And then we pull data for 31 risk factors from publicly available data sets, depending on what you submit um, about your virus's location, the host, the sequence. Um, and, and for public health, I, I just created this quickly for you all to see. For example, if you're a public health practitioner in Uganda, which is suffering terribly right now, you can create your watch list, including the known zoonotics and the unknowns. And you can um, start to do your planning, do your mitigation work, do your um, 
your mapping of where these viruses are and where you might want to work with communities to reduce their risk. Because really what we want is we want to have, yes, the pipelines, have the diagnostics, have the vaccines or the rapid way to create them. But if we can get in front of that curve and if we can understand what's out there, learn how to live safely with the planet in harmony, we can have so many better outcomes, including less risk for epidemics and pandemics. Back to you, Ben. Lovely. Thank you, Jonna. Um, as always, an incredible um, uh, presentation, incredible, also deeply, deeply troubling. There's, <laughs> there's so much that we have to do. But I, I tell you what, um, I don't think there's any going back to a world where pandemics preparation uh, was on the back burner. Um, I think it's the responsibility of, of all of us, um, ASM, the World Microbe Forum, all of us now, to make sure that we invest the resources, uh, the people and the political commitment uh, to prepare as you described. Um, I, I will say, you are the first person who ever made bats look cute to me. I had they never- They are cute. <laughs> so if there's nothing else, um, one of the ways we can communicate to our, our friends and our colleagues is that protect bats because they're cute as well as safety. <laughs> there are a lot of other reasons, but we'll save yeah. that for another day. Well, thank you so much. Um, and so our third and final speaker, by no means least, is Simon Frost, who is uh, the principal data scientist at Microsoft Research. He's also professor of pathogen dynamics at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And um, Simon, I was doing some research on you and I see that you and I were at the same university at the same time. Cambridge University. What college were you at? I was at Trinity, but I had lots of friends at Churchill. Oh, see, you knew Churchill. There we are. I knew Supposedly the MIT of the United Kingdom, but uh, passed me by completely. Anyway, uh, really looking forward to your presentation. Over to you. Wonderful. Thanks very much, Ben. Let me just share my screen. Welcome, everyone. Uh, thanks to the organisers for allowing me to share some of our perspectives on what's next in terms of pandemic preparedness. There you go. So I think there are a number of lessons that we can learn from COVID pandemic. And one important one is the power of data, but also the power of analytics to turn that data into actionable information. So I'm sure many of you have seen the John Hopkins uh, dashboard that collates data from syndromic surveillance or um, diagnostics from all over the world and then displays it, which gives you some sort of situational awareness of the severity of the pandemic in different parts of the world. Genetic sequencing of COVID has also allowed us to track variants of concern, which have proven to have very different characteristics in terms of transmissibility. For example, um, B117 variant arose in the UK at the end of last year and has now spread globally. And we're seeing much the same thing with the Delta variant now. 
The forward-looking lessons from COVID is how can we provide actionable information on the next pandemic, information on new variants and new pathogens and so on. But also, how can we do that in an economically sustainable way? Because despite the amazing stuff that John Over is presenting, we probably can't sequence all the things all the time. We need to have some way to be able to take that infrastructure and focus it on those priority pathogens. Part of the problem is that most species, this being a microbiology conference, should be no surprise, are invisible to the eye. However, all of the billions of sensors that are deployed across the planet can't see those things. So our vision is to be able to create a platform that continuously forecasts and monitors the biological environment with the idea that we can't forecast what we can't sense. So we need to have a platform to generate the data. And we envision a network of biological weather stations to, to do that. We'll need to have new methods for those data. What are we going to do with those data to turn them into decisions? And then we need to be able to show that that network can start off small and provide value and then help support itself. And the idea there is that we have some sort of economically sustainable flywheel that we start off with a small network and then that builds up value that allows us to expand the network. And in doing so, the bigger the network gets, the smarter it gets. So where do we start with this? Well, we've decided to focus on arthropods because they're important as disease vectors, agricultural pests, they're also bioindicators, pollinators, mosquitoes bite many hosts and they can also like flying syringes so they can suck up pathogens that aren't even necessarily vectable. So we thought that would be a good starting point for a platform. And so Microsoft Premonition is a, a set of technologies for monitoring the environment, the biological environment in near real time. And this has very wide applicability, but we're trying to understand vector-borne disease. So for those of you who don't know much about vector surveillance, in the current state of the art, you go out to the environment, you set different trap types for different mosquito species, you visit them after about a day or so, and you have to do so on a regular basis, say weekly. You then take them back to the lab and you then go through them. And sometimes you have to go under a microscope to identify them. Even then it can be very difficult. And then there's biological testing on usually a limited range of pathogens. How we want to change things is that you want to be able to use one device to uh, attract and attract different mosquito species to identify what they are in real time, perhaps without even visiting the trap. And then on the diagnostic side, to enable high throughput identification of the mosquitoes and the pathogens they're carrying. So this is our uh, third iteration of a robotic trap. We have a number of different color variants of different environments. And we also have a, a chamber into which the uh, vectors and mosquitoes are um, collected in. And the robot itself has a number of ways to be configured to attract different sorts of mosquito, depending upon what they like, in terms of heat lures, in terms of carbon dioxide, in terms of light. 
And this author can be like a self-reinforcing loop. So if the trap finds that it's collecting the sort of mosquito that we specify, then it can tune itself to collect even more. We've got a lab in Redmond where we can uh, test these uh, traps. It's an ACL2 compliant laboratory. So we have a, a rearing chamber for mosquito larvae, and then in the central comp uh, compartment, we can release mosquitoes and then uh, try to attract them with different lures and different map designs. We also have lighting that allows us to specify the light profile in any part of the world at any time of year. And then we have these sensors that allow us to be able to identify not invasively what the mosquitoes are. So we have a, a little sensor which the mosquitoes fly through. And uh, when they do so, they include a, a light sensor and that collects information on the size, the frequency at which the wing beats are going. And that allows us to identify and discriminate between mutant mosquitoes and those that carry disease, and um, even amongst different disease-carrying vectors of the same genus. The idea is that we place these traps out in the environment. Here's our urban one, um, and we can put this out, and it's pre-operated and can last in the field for several days, continuously collecting data. And then these can get transmitted, and we have a dashboard where we can present those sorts of data in real time. So, for example, if one is trying to control different vector species by spraying, in principle, we can monitor where the spray truck is driving, and then as it drives past and sprays, we can monitor in real time the uh, reduction in mosquito activity. one of the aspects of this is that it, it directly addresses a need. The US alone spends uh, around $9 billion on non-agricultural pest control. And so that would provide some sort of economic basis. On top of that, it can be more cost effective than the current network because we can take that one trap and, and do adaptive sampling, not just at the trap level, but we can determine where we should put the traps and also to prioritize specimens for downstream biological sampling. And it also has the added value of being in a connected sensor network. So we have uh, weather sensors on each of the tracks because that's relevant to uh, mosquito activity. And we're also generating sequence data that is an of itself of value. But to analyze those sequence data, another barrier that we've identified is the, the lack of computational and engineering expertise to be able to deploy metagenomics at scale. So we have a cloud-based pipeline that allows you to upload sequence data. And then through a number of algorithms, it tells you what's in its sample. Um, it does so very quickly. It spins up many uh, virtual computers across the cloud. And so in doing so, you can get sort of near real-time information on a metagenomics model. To give you an example of how this can operate, we analyzed a large publicly available data set from the Anopheles Gambier 1000 Genomes Project. 
this was collected in order to generate genomes of this malaria-carrying mosquito, not so much to, to do metagenomics. But it provides uh, a good illustration of what our metagenomic platform can do in terms of not only postgenomics, but looking at vector-borne pathogens, blood meal analysis, and so on. So Anopheles gambiae is a vector of malaria, and in many of the mosquitoes, we could detect and assemble both the core genome as well as the apicoplast, which is kind of like a mitochondrial DNA element um, within the mosquitoes. And so that genetic variation might be relevant to uh, developing vaccines, to tracking the spread of different variants of malaria and so on. We also found that in this data set, the mosquitoes fed on many species. So we have reads from cows, pigs, dogs, as well as humans. And then we can also detect viruses that are not insect specific, not even vector borne, but are those that are presumably picked up just by biting an infected host. So on the left, we have a, a near complete genome of hepatitis B virus in a mosquito where we also have lots of human DNA. And then on the right-hand side, we have a bovine parvovirus that we assembled from a mosquito that uh, had many uh, cow DNA reads in the sample. So presumably, if a cow that was infected, and even though that's not relevant for transmission, it does show you how such a mosquito network might be able to give you a, a broad sweep of what different viruses might be the environment. Mosquitoes also have a larval stage, so they pick up lots of bacteria and phage. And so they're also sampling the environment. Uh, one of the challenges, for example, in using phage therapy to target bacteria is that it's difficult to come up with a map of how different phage are specific to different bacterial hosts. And so looking across these more than a thousand specimens uh, in the green dots, the number of phage reads, and so we, we tend to find lots of phage reads alongside uh, samples that had many bacteria that at least appeared to be specific to um, the mosquito, not necessarily due to contamination. So as part of the set of technologies that are designed to look at vectors, we're also developing technical assets that have broader application. So one of those is to understand in collaboration with our collaborators in Nigeria, the Demons University, Christian Happy, and the Nigerian CDC, to understand the outbreak of uh, Lata fever that is seasonal and also highly spatially clustered. So we can take our dashboard that we developed to look at real-time data on vectors, and it's very straightforward to turn that and apply that to a different disease system particularly ones like Lassa fever, where factors such as human population density and ecological variables are thought to also play a very important role. We're also taking some of the samples that are being collected in Nigeria and putting them through our metagenomic pipeline. And in doing so, we're finding people who are infected with many different viruses. When someone's infected with Lassa fever, we can often reconstruct an entire genome of Lassa fever. And then from the same area, perhaps even the same household, 
we're also collecting rodents. And on the right-hand side, we have uh, the coverage of different sequences that have been collected from an infected rodent that also has bladder fever. And we often find when we go down to this very local spatial scale, that there's a very strong relationship between the viruses that we are finding in people and those in the rodents that are in their community at that time, suggesting direct transmission. So in terms of preparing for the next pandemic, we need to have situational awareness of disease threats. I don't think that's uh, particularly controversial. Our vector platform can help to provide real-time data on disease vectors, can help to prioritize samples for sequencing, and then offers a sort of plug and play way for metagenomic analysis of samples. And it's the first step, we think, towards having a network of biological weather stations. Because without having more data and more quality data, we can't predict and prevent disease outbreaks and epidemics. We can't predict and prevent invasive species. So a new species of mosquito might be a prelude for a, an outbreak of a new pathogen. And then we can't also monitor and evaluate our ecosystems to look at the true impact of climate change. So with that, I'd like to thank you and uh, hand it back to Lovely, Simon. That was absolutely fascinating. And, and I'm sort of thinking of, you know, um, uh, Jonna's comment about needing to predict in the field. And I hope this isn't uh, too simplistic of a comment, but now looking to predict in the cloud as well. Um, so so th this is just really a very positive, I think, sense of what we can do in the age of pandemics. And um, I'm, I'm certainly planning to put biological weather stations into my, uh, in, into my, my conversation from now on. Um, so look, we've got about 20 minutes for some questions. I see that a few have uh, come in already. Um, and th there was one that I know that um, uh, Christine and I were hoping that our panellists would, would comment on. And, and that is, you know, essentially you've all talked about how we need to break down barriers and, and start sort of thinking in shifts in the way we connect um, microbiology or data analysis or um, uh, sample collection. And, and post-COVID, it's, it's a shift from human health to animal virums, uh, to insects, to climate. Uh, and, and so my question for all of you, um, and Jay, perhaps we can start with you first, is how do you think the bio microbiology community needs to shift in this new pandemic age? What does it need to do to um, evolve uh, greater engagement with dis different disciplines? Thanks. That's a, it's a great question. I, I, I mean, the themes I would pick up on are, you know, the first part of this, this global threat issue, which is we absolutely, particularly in these pandemic threats, cannot think about how we're going to respond in the U.S. We have to form networks that are truly global and think about the spread in a global way and think about working, you know, across the globe in the preparedness efforts. So that's, that's one extension where I don't think we were quite there without this more recent example. 
And then I think uh, Jonna really pointed out that it's it's not just the humans that we're talking about here. It's it's the the whole picture, including you know all the rest of the creatures on Earth. And I I know the research has always been there, uh, but the connection. Uh, between uh, the global environment and the U.S. and the animal, uh, the zoonotic infections and human infection, it just, you know, really forced us to think about end-to-end uh, research that uh, that we highlighted here today. I think and and think about things in that way: systems, um, a global a global research, surveillance around the globe, and uh, animal to human, to pandemic. And I, I just think that that thinking may have been there, but now I think we're much sharper on it. And the microbiology field really needs to start, you know, thinking that way. Thanks, Jay. John, your sense, and I, I'm also thinking that there's a, a discipline that um, perhaps we haven't spoken about too much tonight, that is communications and public awareness. In, in many ways, COVID-19 has taught us the importance of effective engagement with, with local communities and the broader public, uh, population. What does the microbiology community, do you think, need to do to engage more effectively with the public? Well, you know, I, I have um, horrible feelings of of disappointment in myself, I will tell you, <clears throat> for having worked on this for so long and not have embraced and understood how much communication was really going to be key when it came. You know, my, I always saw my job as keeping it from happening. And, you know, that's going to take an army around the world working together to keep this from happening because now we know the scope. But you and I became friends during this pandemic, Ben, and uh, and that's because it was like, oh my God, you know, we have to do a better job of communicating. We have to make our messages clear and useful. And in that realm, in addition to bringing in social sciences and um, understanding the complexity of communications and how people process how their brains work and process the information. I will say that as a community, as an ASM community, we could do a better job supporting each other. Um, we can't compromise our uh, scientific processes or integrity. Um, we don't want to drop anything in rigor. But I will say that I was incredibly impressed by the scientific community starting to support each other in ways that I hadn't seen before. And some of the easily thrown barbs when you don't know uh, all of the information and the whole story, not only is it just, you know, not as nice as it could be, you could engage in a different way, but it confuses the general public because then they think the scientific community is fighting each other when really we're not. We're all for many things uh, like rigorous investigations and things like that. And so I, I do think that we need to not just learn how to be better public communicators, but we need to communicate with each other and across disciplinary lines better and, and more collegially. Yeah, amen to that. Um, Simon, I mean, here you work, here you are, this sort of fascinating interface of um, 
biotechnology and um, technology. Uh, how do you see these connections being made and, and, and what should the microbiology community do essentially to support more such connections being made? I think that there's um, a number of ways in which we can do that. I mean, one of the things that's missing in that whole workflow between a weather station and some metagenomic is all the, the lab side of things. And in terms of the quality of the data and the scientific questions need to be asked, we're just here to provide a, a support role to that. Um, I mean, one of the things that I would like to see, uh, and this very much touches on uh, the work that, uh, that Donna was presenting, is having a better idea of host restriction. So how do different viruses hop between different hosts? Because that's an important uh, predictor of um, something into humans, which is another animal after all. So I'd love to see things such as trying to look at cross-species transmission within zoos, where we're bringing together animals from different parts of the world that in nature would never be together and that should tell us a lot about um, what's the real barrier to cross-species transmission. And with the sorts of tools that we're providing, if we were to put a mosquito trap in a zoo, for example, what sort of thing would we find? Um, and then, you know, if we were to plug in to uh, state wildlife vets and um, animal collections and so on, what sort of thing would we find in terms of perhaps not just new viruses, but also ones that we find in new and surprising places. And, and our infrastructure, I hope, could help support that. And I guess, you know, part of that is going to to be increasingly develop a common developing a common language between these various sectors, uh, between the data collectors and the the analyzers, um, and and I think to sort of broaden it out uh, again, a question for all three of you and Jonna, maybe I could start with you as as uh, you're here with a, a a primary affiliation with a university, the UC University of California at Davis. You, you talked about. Um, how you need to change the way you uh, engage and teach with uh, teach your students as a result of COVID. Um, but in a strategic sense, as well as the microbiology field, what do universities have to do to be more engaged and more effective in preparing for next the next phase of pandemics? Maybe they should hire more wildlife veterinarians. I like Simon's idea there. I was a wildlife veterinarian for the state of California before I was a professor. So, um, <laughs> but uh, seriously, I, I am really proud of our university and many others around uh, the world, um, but I know more about the ones in this country. Um, but we have a program called Healthy Davis Together, where the university actually stepped in and offered testing uh, at twice a week for the entire community, even if you're not associated with the university. Now it's a college town. It's not a huge you know, mega city or anything. Um, but the the program was identifying the quiet cases, right? The the asymptomatic cases. So kids could go to school, teachers could feel comfortable, they could be tested um, twice a week, and then they 
stayed home and they quarantined. And um, so I think that, you know, if we take that to scale, if Jake takes that to scale and gives us opportunities um, for really rapid testing at home and, you know, come to people where they live, um, we can just see dramatic, dramatic changes. And um, we can't wait for the next disease. We have to be ready uh, to do that using all the tools that will come out of this um, that are a bit of the silver linings um, to help us prioritize, uh, but also to have um, pipelines um, that are sort of ready to go and pre-approved. And I think that's all feasible, but that means working with our government colleagues. And like, like you said, Jay, I have been working with FDA, never did before right. uh, this pandemic. So, um, so I think the world is changing, but we have to take advantage of it and keep up the positive enthusiasm for change. Let me let me pick up on on that and and the themes that I also heard from Simon um, and things I've learned through this. Location matters, geolocation matters. So, I'm a tester. And I love to test things. And however, I can't test for all organisms in all places at all times. And if I just look in the U.S., isn't I, I, we understand antimicrobial resistance and we understand tick-borne disease, but you actually, to be effective in respiratory viruses, we need to know where they are, where certain viruses and vectors are, are prevalent so that we can target surveillance, so that we can target testing. And so that really is a kind of response to your earlier question on the technology side. I really think bringing lab testing together with geolocation is incredibly important in all infectious diseases. And I think it's something that we've known, but I don't think we've implemented yet at scale. And it's, it's one of those things that just has to happen because that's how we're really going to get smart and uh, be able to respond, not just to pandemics, but to tick-borne disease and antimicrobial resistance and all of it. So another big theme for me would be bringing that discipline together with the lab testing and the great work that, that John has uh, been doing, for example. Could I ask you all about perhaps the role of the private sector and partnerships with uh, societies like ASM? Um, I mean, we've clearly learned through COVID-19 that a mass mobilization, perhaps nothing seen since World War II has been needed. What do you think the lessons are that we've learned and, and how can we take those forward? Um, Simon, could I start with you? So I think that... Um, we can target... As, uh, as Jason, we can target different populations in order for us to be able to focus on different pathogens. And uh, the theme that I brought up in my talk was really about trying to think of how we can sustain our research. I was an academic for 20 odd years, and it was it was difficult to uh, support through funding having a sort of forward looking program that that allows us to respond and to analyze pathogens, particularly those that go between different uh, different host species. So you might have a funding body that deals with wildlife as well as one that deals with uh, humans and, and never the twain shall meet. So uh, I think I've already mentioned the, the host restriction side of things. 
I think we might have lost you a bit on the uh, the, the Zoom call, Simon. But, um, but bear with, and uh, let me ask Jonna to to comment about you know how you have changed working with the private sector as a as a result of COVID nineteen. Well, I am uh, you know completely committed to this to this partnering and and you know in the ivory tower of academia we talk about reaching across disciplinary lines but we you know i i told someone recently who said yeah but what you do is never going to be making it into commercialization in the private sector i said if it's not we're doomed we have to be um working together creating ideas and some of, of those ideas will be best researched in a, a university kind of laboratory uh, because that's a you know functional efficient way to do it and and others will be in the private sector it, the more we work together the better but the university people, many of you out there listening, we have to be better about working with our counterparts and discussing what can be spun off. Um, not because you want to be rich, maybe you do, but that's fine. But because you because you owe it to society, so that we get it into the hands and get it into the places and the to the people, get it where it needs to be. Yeah, John, we all have our skill sets, right? And I, I do think that through the pandemic, what Quest does well is appreciated a little more now, right? And we're just scientists and physicians like the folks in academia. So for this to work. We've got to work with the academic groups to bring things to scale, and we've got to work with Simon on surveillance, right? And I do think the ASM could play a role at bringing us together around some of these threats to say, you know, how's this going to work? How do we leverage Quest Diagnostics and the great research and the surveillance technology? Because there isn't really a convening body out there that's doing it today. So I have to jump in because we've been advocating for a One Health Council kind of for the state of California that would be made up of exactly um, the folks you say include in, and including uh, our government counterparts. So um, I do think that that should happen on a national scale. It should happen on a local scale um, and maybe even regionally. So I'm with you. Let's make it happen. Okay, well, there we have a clear commitment from from all of us. And, um, uh, you know, I think um, uh, we'll make sure that uh, and work with ASM to to help us pull all of that together. Well, I'm, I'm looking and seeing that we're coming up to the uh, end of the half hour. And in fact, my Jack Russell that normally sleeps quietly at my feet is also begging for his dinner here in California. Um, so uh, first of all, let me just thank our speakers for an incredible, uh, um, really intellectually rigorous and challenging uh, conversation about um, the impact of uh, COVID-19 across all of our disciplines. Thank you so much. Um, I also want to thank the ASM and the World Microbe Forum for, for hosting this. And again, I just want to say uh, 
Victor Stefano, thank you so much for promoting COVAX um, as something that we should contribute to. It's a really, really important need. And as I think we've all said, no one is safe until everyone is safe. So with that, I want to close out and hand over to uh, who I ref someone I referred to at the start as uh, one of my partners in crime, Christine Russo, who very, very kindly uh, got in touch and asked me to get engaged in this session. Um, this will go up as a Shot in the Arm podcast. You'll be able to find it on all of your preferred podcast platforms, as well as YouTube and Facebook. Um, thank you so much for letting me uh, join you tonight in this uh, networking session. Um, next year, I hope we will be able to do it in person and have some real drinks in front of us instead of uh, water. Um, Christine, over to you to wrap us up. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you to all the speakers. You've all just blown my mind today. So uh, we have a lot of work to do. Um, ASM is honored to have you all uh, as part of World Microbe Forum. Um, I'd like to thank the Corporate Council um, and uh, the Academy. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you all here today. Of course, the Board of ASM, the executive team. So um, thanks, everyone. I think uh, we're, we're coming up on uh, the end of our session here. Um, amazing themes coming through, the, you know, the power of uh, consumer, uh, putting things in, in uh, the consumer's hands, uh, the fact that we're all connected, um, the importance of communication, and um, we may be getting exposed to millions of viruses all the time. So with that, I'll say good night, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.